please turn with me now to the book of First Timothy, chapter 3. Uh, beloved, if you do need a Bible this morning, uh, there should be one in the pew in front of you, and you're welcome to turn with us. This morning we will be reading out of the English Standard Version, the ESV. First uh, Timothy chapter 3 will be our chapter text. This morning we'll be looking at verses 8 to 13. First Timothy chapter 3, beginning at verse 8 down to the end of verse 13. My friends, we have entitled this morning sermon, Called to Be a Deacon. Called to Be a Deacon. First Timothy chapter 3, beginning at verse 8. Beloved, let's read together. This is the word of the living God. God says, deacons, likewise, must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. And let them also be tested first. Then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives likewise must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. Beloved, this is the word of God. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Father, we come to you. Your word tells us that if any lack wisdom, we are to ask. Father, for you give graciously and abundantly to all who ask without reproach. Father, we come. We confess that we are children, Lord, even in our thinking and understanding, and that we can understand nothing apart from your sovereign grace. Father, send your spirit now, we pray. Help us to see this truth, to see the beauty and the gift of the office of the deacon. Please Help us, Lord Jesus, to see this good government that you have given to your church, Lord, that we might rejoice in you, that we might serve you with joy and zeal. And Father, we pray that you would guard us from error. For this we ask in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, friends, here in 1 Timothy chapter 3, we're talking about leadership in the church. Now, remember that in the end of chapter 2, we talked about how Christ had set a pattern for leadership within his church, that as Christ is the head of the church, that the church is to reflect the glory of Christ and the headship of Christ over his bride, the church. And so we saw how the office of the elder, the office of the overseer, was to be restricted by apostolic command to a man, that only men were to be ordained and appointed as overseers, pastors, or elders within the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, and so last week we looked at the office of the overseer. We saw how the office of the overseer, uh, that this was the pastorate. And we saw how this is one term that, that encapsulates this entire office. So overseer, pastor, elder, these are all the same. They are three distinct portraits of one office. And what we discovered was that the critical qualification for a pastor, for the overseer of Christ's church, is Christ-like character. That that was the fundamental, essential, non-negotiable standard. That that's where it started. That is, friends, as the Lord Jesus begins to give the gifts of elders and deacons to his church, when the Holy Spirit is 
converting and raising up these men, what we see first and foremost is not their giftedness, not their ability to speak or the great abilities they might have in other areas of service, but what is seen first is their formation of their character into the likeness of Christ. That's where it starts. And so today we are seeing that the deacon has the same character qualifications. That the deacon is to have the same Christ-like character. Now friends, remember when we talked about this last week, we looked at Jesus as the standard. Remember Paul said that an overseer must be above reproach. And on the one hand, friends, not a single pastor is above the reproach of sin. That every pastor, every elder that you will ever meet in your entire life is a sinner, redeemed by grace. And so there is sin that God is exposing, that God is rebuking, that God is reproving and forming him into the likeness of Jesus. So Christ is the standard, friends. Every elder falls short. And likewise, every deacon falls short. Nevertheless, Christ is the standard and the elder and the deacon are to be examples to the church of God. As Paul said, follow me as I follow Christ. And Paul would say what you have heard from me, what you have seen in me, emulate and teach to others also. That is, friends, elders, deacons, officers within the church stand as examples for us as the flock of God. They stand as living, vibrant, though flawed illustrations of what it means to trust in the Lord Jesus, to serve him in our families and in our communities and in his church. And they stand for us as those who help us see something of the glory, of the goodness, of the grace that is in Christ. So friends, think of it almost like a, like a frost-paned doorway or a window. We're looking through these men to Christ. We're looking through them to He who is perfectly good and true and faithful and pure. So, friends, the office of the elder is a high calling. We looked at how it was plural. That's same in verse 8, friends. Remember, Paul says the deacons. Notice again, friends, both church offices are in the plural. That there's not one deacon that Paul is addressing to Timothy, the church of Ephesus, but there is a, a body of deacons. There is a group of deacons. Again, it was true with the elders. There's not just Timothy the pastor, Timothy the teacher, there is Timothy alongside a body of other elders, a group of godly men who together shepherd the flock of God that is among them. So it's true with the office of the deacons. It's in the plural. Christ gives multiple deacons to his church. Multiple men are gifted for this task. But what does it mean to be a deacon? Well, friends, the word deacon in verse 8 has a sense of servant. A deacon is a servant of Christ, a servant of God to minister to the church of God, particularly to minister to the physical, material needs of the people of God. 
the focus of the deacon is on the bodies of men and their physical needs. Even as for the elder, their distinction is for the souls of men. Now, friends, they're both spiritual tasks. They're both ordained offices. Sometimes, friends, we can get into this platonic thinking where we're saying, well, the body is kind of second tier, right? And the spirit's what's really important. And sometimes we can get that sort of Gnostic thinking in our mind where we can say, well, you know, it's, it's better just to be concerned about spiritual things and physical things are somehow beneath it. But that's not true at all, friends. Remember our Lord Jesus, when he saw the multitudes crowding around the Sea of Galilee, he had compassion upon them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he preached the word of God to them and he ministered to their soul. But he also ministered to their bodies as well. For our Lord Jesus, when he saw the multitudes he said to the disciples, let's feed them. And the disciples said, we don't have enough bread to feed them. But you remember our Lord Jesus multiplied the loaves and the fish and all the multitude ate their fill and there was plenty left over. Friends, your father in heaven not only cares about your soul, he also cares about your body. He cares about the whole man. And in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, there is the care for the whole man for the whole person, for the whole disciple, body and soul. That's what we see in Acts 6. You recall the situation there. Here, Jerusalem is exploding. The church of Jerusalem, friends, is what we would define as a megachurch in numeric terms. There were thousands and thousands of new believers converted at Pentecost, come to faith in Christ, and daily the Spirit is adding to the number of those who are worshiping Christ Jesus there in the city of Jerusalem. And there's a problem because there's so many people and so many of the Jews are deeply impoverished. In fact, Paul will spend a lot of his ministry collecting offerings from the Gentiles, from the Greeks that have come to Christ to bring back to minister to the needs of the poor and impoverished in Jerusalem. Friends, these Christians are starving to death. And this is a need in the church. And so what do the apostles do? Well, the apostles ordain that there's going to be a daily distribution of food. So from the monies that were collected by the church, the apostles are going out, they're buying bread, and they're distributing it. But then the Hellenists, the Greek speakers, say, wait a minute, our widows, the Greek-speaking widows are being neglected. They're not getting the food that they need. The Hebrew-speaking Christians are, but, but these poor widows aren't being neglected. And the apostles say, Church, this task is necessary. Our widows need to be taken care of. They need their daily food. Christ Jesus cares about the bodies of men as well as their souls. And so what do the apostles do? The apostles say, we must focus on the ministry of the word and prayer. That must be our priority. Now again, the apostles aren't saying they're beneath Serving tables. That's not what they're saying. But they're saying our focus must be on the ministry of the word and prayer. But this is a, another important ministry of the church. The care for the bodies of men. For the care of the physical well-being of the church of Jesus Christ. And so the apostles, speaking under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, say to seven men are full of wisdom and the Holy Spirit set them apart and we will appoint them to this task. And these were the first 
deacons, these seven that were appointed by the apostles at the church in Jerusalem. And friends, these deacons were no couch potatoes. And many of them were powerful preachers. One of them, Philip, was an evangelist, a fiery, amazing preacher of the word of God that God used to bring the gospel to the Samaritans and the Ethiopian eunuch. We see the testimony of the first Christian martyr who was one of these deacons, Stephen. Friends, the office of the deacon is not a second-class office. It is essential to the governance, to the care, to the administration of Christ over his church. But there are distinctions of responsibility, focuses, as it were, because the need is so great. So the deacon serves under Christ, caring for the bodies of men, for the material, physical well-being of the church of Jesus Christ. And this is a spiritual task. And this is the aim, the care for the body. Now, the character qualities, the character qualifications are exactly the same. Now, they're distinguished in brief here in verse 8, whereas the qualifications are more expansive in the uh, previous verses. But again, it's the same idea, dignified. What does it mean to have dignity? A dignity means to be respectable, honorable. One who is to be held up as an example. Again, friends, not perfection, but an example to emulate. A man that we can look to and say, you know, when I need to have an example of what it's like to love my family and to be faithful in my job, this man is an example for me or how it means to love and serve Christ. Not perfection, but an example to emulate. And that means, friends, when we're examining candidates, we must be careful. By the Holy Spirit, we are asking Christ to reveal, okay, friends, sometimes there might be fruits of the flesh that have emerged, and these would be warning signs that God the Holy Spirit would use to help us pull back and and take a pause upon uh, nominating or approving a deacon candidate for office because a deacon must not be double-tongued. That means deceitful, not addicted to much wine. He's not a drunkard. Again, friends, just like the office of the overseer, remember, Paul is not saying that the consumption of alcohol is itself sinful or is something that would disqualify an elder candidate or a deacon candidate. That's not what Paul is saying. Remember, Paul says to Timothy, Timothy, even as an overseer, you may drink a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your constant, uh, your constant stomach problems. And so, friends, again, it's not the consumption, but it is the abuse. And so we see that not addicted to much wine. So with the deacon candidate, is he honest? Is he self-control? And he's not greedy. That is, friends, is he content with what the Lord provides? He's not a lover of money. He's not one that is always seeking to increase his own wealth at the expense of others. Now, friends, it's good to be industrious. Christ calls you to be faithful in the work that he's given to you. That means, friends, investing, enterprise, the entrepreneurial spirit, that's in accord with the truth of God. That's in accord with the command of Christ to be fruitful, to be multiply, to increase, and to make provision for ourselves and our families. But greed is when that money has taken hold of our heart. Friends, either we hold our money as something that God has entrusted to us, we hold it loosely, or it has a hold on us. 
And that was the problem with the rich young ruler, remember? Christ said, if you would be perfect, sell all that you have and give to the poor and come follow me. And the rich young ruler went away sad because he had much wealth. Why is that? Well, friends, the rich young ruler loved his money. The money was his God. The money was his idol. And he went away sorrowful because unregenerate, hard in his heart, he loved this idol more than he wanted Christ, more than he wanted his God. And so, friends, these are some warning signs. These are some character qualities to be on guard against. We are to look for men that are faithful, self-controlled, and content with what the Lord provides. And in verse 9, we see not only is there a holy character that deacon is called to, but he must be orthodox. He must be one who understands and believes the gospel. Now, friends, again, the deacon is not a spiritual couch potato. He must hold the faith with a good conscience. Now, notice again, verse 9, the mystery. Friends, when we think of mystery, oftentimes we think of mystery novels, or we think of uh, problems that need to be solved, or we think of maybe the game Clue and trying to figure out who has committed the murder. But friends, in the Greek, that word mysterion really has the sense of something that is a reality, a truth that is perceivable and understandable to a degree, but something that we have not completely figured out yet. Paul will use this to talk about the mystery of Christ that was kept secret for ages, but has now been revealed by the Holy Spirit through his apostles. That is, the message of the gospel was pointing to the Messiah, the Son of Promise, to come. And when the apostles came, when the Holy Spirit came and gave us the New Testament, we saw more clearly the person and work of the Christ, because we saw it fulfilled in Jesus, the mystery was made apparent. It was revealed. The veil was taken away. We saw more clearly. And see, that same gospel was operative in the Old Testament, just as it is in the New Testament, friends. I, I remind you that men have always been saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and the promise of God alone, which is Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. And this, friends, has always been communicated by God in His Word. There is only one way of salvation. There has only ever been one way of redemption. That's what Paul teaches us in Romans chapter 4. Abraham was justified by faith because he was resting in Christ and Christ's righteousness. Well, the mystery of the faith, what Paul is saying here in verse 9, he's using faith as a body of truth. The faith. We talk about the Christian faith as opposed to the Islamic faith or the Hindu faith. It is that body of doctrine. It is that corpus of teaching that we hold to. So friends, the deacon must be orthodox and he must understand the truth claims of the scriptures. He must have a good grasp of the gospel message. He must understand that God is holy, that he is a sinner and that Jesus Christ is the only Savior, he must be able to communicate these truths to others, summoning, calling, urging his friends and family and neighbors to repent, to believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ that they might be saved. He must hold this faith, which is a mystery, insofar as there's many things 
that we can't figure out all the way. For example, friends, the person of Christ. The Bible teaches us very clearly. John 1.1. 1, 1, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Jesus is the eternal Logos. He is God in truth, God in full. Very light and very light, as the confession says. And Jesus is true humanity. The offspring of David, according to the flesh. The offspring of the woman, according to the promise of God. He is true humanity in every respect, except for sin. But friends, remember, sin is not an original part of human nature. It is the corruption of that nature, good nature that God created us in. Truly God, truly man. Two natures in one person. That's a mystery, friend. And so he's going to fall one way or the other into heresy. But the deacon must be able to say, I believe this because God's word teaches it. And I see how it functions to help me understand who Jesus is and what he's done. I am able to rest in the truth of God and in the word of his grace. So friends, again, mystery is not contradiction. Mystery is not saying crucify your mind. It's not a leap into the dark, right? You know, a contradiction is saying that something, you know, is and is A and non-A in the same way, in the same relationship. So a contradiction would be this pulpit uh, is not a pulpit. I've just uttered a nonsense statement. I've communicated to you nothing of any truth or significance. But friends, the word of God is not contradictory. It is mysterious. The truth is there. The truth holds together. It's coherent. It's consistent. God wants you to love Him with all your mind, dear Christian. The faith that was once for all delivered to you is not nonsense. It's not irrational. It is cogent. It is consistent. Though, friends, there is such mystery in it that we will spend eternity delving into the depths of all God's glory and grace. So the deacon must understand, receive, and rest in Christ and in the gospel, holding these truths with a clear conscience. He, he can't be a liberal, in other words. He can't be a theological liberal who says, well, you know, I think Jesus is probably just the best of men. He's a man among men. He's an example for us, but he's not the Son of God. Well, friends, Paul is telling us that that man is not orthodox. Whatever Jesus he's trusting in is not the Jesus of Scripture. He's not the true Jesus. He has some idol in his mind, some figment of his imagination that he's calling Jesus, but that's not the Jesus of the Scripture. Because the Jesus of the Bible is the God man. And so such a man would not be qualified for the office of the deacon, much less the office of the elder. So friends, when looking at deacon candidates, we examine their character. Do they have Christ-like character? We look at their doctrine. Are they orthodox? Are they receiving and rejoicing in the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints? Now friends, we've had two deacon candidates that our congregation just approved and accepted last Sunday. Friends, I can tell you that we've spent many hours examining both their faith and their, their teaching, their understanding, and their character. 
Uh, Verse 10, we see that there is a time of testing. So friends, just like Paul said for the overseer, don't be hasty on the laying on of hands. Paul says the same with the deacons. He says, don't be so quick to ordain a man to the office of the deacon or the elder. They need time to be tested. They need time of seasoning. They need time of training. They need time to begin to work and serve the Lord Jesus Christ and care for His church so that the character, the godly character that God is forming in them might be revealed to the congregation and that they, uh, they would have opportunity to be trained and let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. So there's a, there's a time frame. There's a need for testing. And so as a church, we've had these deacon candidates and, and we have been examining them, giving them opportunities to serve for these uh, last year or so, and they have proved themselves blameless. So, again, character, their doctrine, and then they need practical application. They need a practicum. They need some opportunity just to see day in, day out, week in, week out, what it looks like to serve Christ and to care for his church, to care for the needs of the people of God. Because, friends, what Paul is assuming is that there may be some men whose character is exemplary, whose doctrine is orthodox, but they really don't have an appetite for service. They really, it's hard for them to give up of their time and of their talent and their treasure. They might have all the Character, they might be very orthodox, but they may not be zealous for the work of the Lord. They might be lazy. And Paul says they need opportunities to serve as deacons, as deacon candidates, so that these gifts and callings might be revealed. And so, friends, again, you have wonderful deacons. Our church has amazing deacons that he's raised up. And I'm so very proud of the men that the Lord has given to us and of these two deacon candidates that God has given to us because I think they hit all these marks. Their character, their doctrine, and their zeal for the Lord. Now again, friends, um, we see in verse 11, this, and, and it's again, it's looking at the home life. So friends, what we are in public sometimes is not always what we are in private. And so, because there tends to be this distortion or this distinction, Paul says you need to take time not only to look at them publicly, face to face, but you need to see them at home. And in verse 11, we see that the wives of deacons have a certain calling. They're not deacons themselves, but they are called to have the same character, a noble respectable character. And Paul says that they're not slanderers, but sober-minded. What he's reminding them is, friends, if you're an officer in the church, if you're an elder, if you're a pastor's wife or the wife of of an elder, or if you're the wife of a deacon, friends, there's going to be a lot of information that you'll be privy to, circumstances and occasions that you will hear about, and you need to be very Gracious and gentle and self-controlled in how those things are shared, right? That there is a, a certain degree of, is this man and his wife, are they able to 
keep things in confidence. Not conceal sin, that's, that's not the point, but, but are, they, are they those that people can trust when there is an issue to be resolved, a problem that needs to be addressed? These men and their wives are trustworthy and that they are people that we can confide in. So their wives are not slanderers, but they're sober-minded. They are clear-headed. Now, friends, again, these are marks of the flesh. Slander, lack of self-control. But these are things that God, the Holy Spirit, is removing and pruning. These are behaviors and conducts that we're putting to death that we might live to the glory of God, that we might be self-controlled. So friends, again, when you, when you look at these fruits of the flesh, remember that the process of sanctification is ongoing. When you are born again, God the Holy Spirit came into your heart. He came and He took up residence within you. You were once a child of darkness. And now you are a child of light. The Holy Spirit has come and He has changed you. He has given you the gift of faith. He has granted you repentance, which leads to life. He has brought you to see, to believe, and to follow King Jesus. Sanctification, friends, begins the very moment that you're born again. And it's instant. It is immediate. We begin to change because we are new creatures in Christ Jesus. See, that's the point, friends. If we are truly born again, if we are truly united to Christ, our life will immediately begin to look different because there are new loves in our heart that weren't there before. There will be new desires here that weren't there before. We will want to serve Christ. We will want to serve God. Now, friends, does that mean that sin will no longer be an issue for us? No, 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 friends. The battle against sin is ongoing. Remember, Paul talks of it we're carrying around this old man of the flesh. We're carrying him around. But the Holy Spirit has given us victory in Christ. He is empowering us. He is enabling us. He is working in and through us, both to desire and do what God commands. So friends, sanctification is a process. It's ongoing. You are holy in Christ, and God is making you holy in your character. So when that sin is revealed, whether it be a slanderous tongue, a lack of self-control, greed, envy, whatever sin God reveals in our life. Friends, remember your Father in Heaven is doing this because He loves you. And He cares for you. And His desire for you is to be conformed into the likeness of His Son. He wants you to be holy, not only in your position but also in your practice and the way you think and love and live. And so when this sin is revealed, he brings us to repentance. He restores us. He begins to kill those desires, even as we cleave more closely to him. So friends, again, God is sovereign over your sanctification. You have all the resources you need in Christ. God, the Holy Spirit has promised never to leave you nor forsake you. But yet, friends, sanctification is a call and a command for the Christian. It's a call to pick up our cross daily and follow Jesus. Remember Paul says in Philippians 2, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. The call to holiness, friends, is a call to action for the Christian. 
Not because we have any power in ourselves. Not because we have any ability in ourselves. Not because we're so strong in and of ourselves. But because we know that our God is faithful to work in and through us to desire and do what He commands. Maybe an illustration would help. Imagine, imagine that you are walking in a park. Imagine that there's a blind man. The blind man has a stick, right? And you see another man walk beside the blind man. Now the blind man's walking. He's got his stick and he's got a destination. But there's another man beside him and that man is leading him where he needs to go. Friends, that's what your sanctification is like. You're walking. You're doing something. You're engaged in the process. You're identifying sin. You're confessing sin. You're clinging to Christ. You're seeking to abide with Him. But just like that blind man, friends, you would never make it to your destination. You would have no stability, no power, no encouragement if not God the Holy Spirit be with you to walk and lead you and bring you exactly where you need to be. Yes, you're engaged, friends. But this is under the sovereign grace of God. So friends, all that to say is when we examine a deacon and we look at their families, friends, we're not looking for perfection, but we are looking for those who recognize that they have been called by God to serve and to honor Christ. And we're seeing something of that holy character being formed in them. Faithful in all things. Well, friends, for our deacons and for our deacon candidates, I can tell you for sure that their wives are very faithful and very dignified. And I give thanks for them. Well, in verse 12, friends, we come to the uh, one woman man statement. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife. Now, friends, as I told you, when we looked at the office of the overseer, we must, we must, we must interpret this in view of the present condition. Because Paul is saying, here is a candidate to be an overseer. Here is a candidate to be an elder. Here's a candidate to be a pastor. And here's a candidate to be a deacon. You are to look at the man as he stands before you right now. Is he a one-woman man? Remember, that is speaking of his present condition. If he's married, because you don't have to be married to be a deacon or an elder, if he is married, is he faithful to his wife? That's what Paul means. He's not a polygamist. He's not an adulterer. He's not running around town having all kinds of affairs. He has a wife and he's faithful to her. He loves her. He cherishes her. He cares for her. He washes her with the word of God. Now, friends, some have read in this one woman man that any divorce disqualifies a man from the office of the elder or the pastorate or the office of the deacon. And friends, as I said last week, that is a man-made tradition being imposed upon the text. That's an importation. That's eisegesis. We're putting meaning into that text because as it stands before us, the man, as he is presently, if he is faithful to his wife, if he's married, that is good and that is pleasing to God. And friends, again, a divorce does not necessarily nor automatically make a man unqualified to be a deacon or an elder. It could, friends, depending on what it was. But as it stands, friends, look at the man as he stands before you. Is he faithful to his wife? And friends, to that end, 
you know, in our own congregation, there are men that I know uh, that I believe have, have all the callings and qualifications to be deacons and elders. And they have struggled, these men have, with the question of divorce. I've been divorced. Does this mean that I can never serve Christ in his church as an officer? Well, friends, I think Paul is not saying that. Paul is not saying that the divorce has irrevocably, automatically, in perpetuity, disqualified a man from office. Again, present condition. Look at his character before you now. Is he faithful to his wife? Is he wise and holy in his dealings? Does he have a good respect and rapport with others in the community? Is he a man worthy of respect? Is he a man worthy of honor? Friends, that's what's before the church. The present character and conduct of the man. So friends, I do think there are men in our church that have wrestled with that. And I do think that as a church, we ought to seriously pray uh, about admitting them. Well, also, not only is he faithful to his wife, but does he manage his children well and his household? Remember, the house, the home, is the proving ground of faithfulness. Our homes are the first test of fidelity to Christ. If we cannot be faithful to the Lord Jesus in our homes, Paul is saying, how can we expect him to be faithful in the family of God, in the church of God? You know, friends, sometimes... We don't always think of our families, you know, we have other priorities, right? We're focused on our jobs, we're focused on our schooling, we're focused on our activities, and and we have all this demand on our substance. But friends, the scriptures really tell us that faithfulness begins at the home. It begins as deacons first recognize and elders recognize, I'm a husband and I'm a father. Before I'm a deacon... First, a follower of Christ called to be faithful in my home, to love my children, to care for them, to seek for their salvation, to pray for them, to raise them up in the discipline and admonition of the Lord. That must be the first priority. It starts in the home. Because if the officer can't be faithful in the home, Paul says, he ought not to be trusted with faithfulness in the church. So he manages his children and households well. So there's a sense of management. Friends, fathers, you have the responsibility to set the tone for your families, to set the agenda and the priorities. And fathers, you know that we make the time for those things which are most important to us. I mean, we, we only have so many hours in the day, right? There's 24 hours in the day. We sleep eight of them. We have 16 waking hours. And we are always stressed of having so much to do and so little time to do it. But you know what's so funny, friends? We make time for the things that are most important to us. I love to go to the gym, friends. And so I make time multiple times a week to go to the gym, to work out for an hour or two hours because that's in important to me. I protect the time. I value the time. It is a priority for me. Friends, your checkbook will say a lot about your priorities, but your schedule, your weekly schedules will say so much more about what's most important for us. As fathers, we're called to set the priorities. And as a household, we will be seeking to serve the Lord, to give Him the glory, to 
worship him, to pursue him. That will be the priority. Other things will fall and follow that. So, friends, the deacon is called to be an example of that. The overseer of setting the priorities for godliness and faithful service to Christ in their homes. Managing their children and their own households well. So, not only do fathers set the priorities and the agenda, but there's a sense of managing the children and their households. That is disciplining, training them in the way of the Lord. That, friends, is something not to be neglected. Friends, just on a a little side note, we have gone through in the church growth movement in these United States a sense that evangelism and discipleship is the duty of the church as a whole and the trained uh, or only, you know, the trained officers. It's the duty of the pastor or the Sunday school teacher. These are the, these are the trained teachers of the Word of God that are to communicate to our children the message of salvation. And friends, oftentimes we treat the church like school. I'm going to send my child to church so he can learn about the things of God. It's like I sent my child to school to learn geometry and English. And we sort of delegate that responsibility. Now, friends... The church is to be the place where the gospel is preached, where the word of God is proclaimed. This is where your children are going to hear of Christ and Him crucified. But it cannot be the only place. It has to be, first and foremost, in our homes. That must be where it starts. And that means we ourselves have to make the commitment, resolving by God's grace, That part of what it means to manage and raise our children is not just getting them to church on Sunday mornings, but it's taking the time to pray with them, to love them, to open the Word of God to them, to talk about what it means to be a sinner and that Christ is the only Savior, friends. The church is where the gospel is proclaimed, but it cannot be the only place where your children and grandchildren hear it. It must be also in our homes. And so that's the calling that Paul is admonishing uh, these Timothy to see, that these men are leading in their homes. And then verse 13, there's this wonderful promise, friends. For those who served well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. Friends, to be a deacon is a noble calling. It's a noble task. It's something to be honored. It's something to be Sought after, not in an ambitious way, but as Paul says here, as a deacon, friends, it's, it's like, well, it's a little bit like going through the military and, and you go into specialized training, right? You've made it through your first rounds of basic, but you, you want to be trained and, and gain further skills and put yourself through even more circumstances, right? So that's what the deacon is and the officer of the elder, friends. This is high responsibility. But the fruit of that in the life of the believer is that these men under this responsibility are being matured and sanctified and used for the glory of God. It's, you know, it's like a pressure cooker. Friends, these men are being given such responsibility and God by His Holy Spirit is sanctifying them working in and through them, and it produces assurance. 
Again, friends, be very careful. Sometimes it's easy to say, well, I'm a deacon, therefore I'm a Christian. I'm a pastor, therefore I'm a Christian. I'm a, I'm a Sunday school teacher, therefore I'm a Christian. It's easy to stake our salvation on a title or a church membership. That's not what Paul means. But Paul does mean that as these men are serving Christ and pursuing him, what comes home is the assurance that they belong to Jesus. They gain great confidence. My God is for me. My Lord is faithful to me. There's great confidence in the faith. These things have been tested by fire. These convictions have been forged in the flame. And these men have grown by the grace of God. Friends, to be a deacon is a calling to maturity. It's a calling to faithfulness, just as a calling to be a pastor, to be an elder. It's a call to maturity and faithfulness. Because, friends, we are standing as examples for the flock. We are, like Paul, saying, follow me insofar as I follow Christ. And they should have honor and good standing within the church. So, friends, deacons are God's good gift to the church. Pastors, elders are God's good gifts to the church. These aren't something to be trivialized or thought of as insignificant because, friends, as they stand for the church, they are meeting the very needs of the people of God. The overseers caring for the souls, prioritizing the souls of men, the preaching of the word and the ministry of prayer. The deacons continue to minister to the needs, the material well-being, the physical needs of the people of God. And together, these officers show us in very flawed, imperfect ways something of the goodness of Christ. Something of the grace of God. You know, friends, sometimes the hardest thing to do... Uh, you know, as a pastor, sometimes you'll get a call and it might be, you know, you have to run to the hospital and, and you're there. And, and sometimes you don't always have time to think through what to say. And sometimes you're there and you don't know what to say. Right. What words do you say? What scriptures do you say? And I pray all the time that God, the Holy Spirit, would help me and give me those words to say and, and to be there and to pray. Friends, you know that as a Christian, when you are in those circumstances, you're standing as a representative of Christ. You're standing as a, a, an imperfect, yes, but a tangible display of Christ's love for his people as they're suffering and in their pain. And friends, as an officer in the church, that's what we carry with us. We are a visible, tangible Representative, flawed, yes, but demonstrating something of the grace, of the goodness, of the love of God for his people, of Christ for his church. So, friends, in closing, I would ask you to pray for me as a pastor, to pray for our deacons as they lead, and pray also that the Lord would help us to see those men that God may have already given to us and may even now already be raising up to be elders and deacons within our church. Because the call of the church is not to invest with authority. 
It is to recognize and receive these good gifts, these men, as the Holy Spirit brings them. And friends, in closing, if, you, if you've not yet fled to Christ, I pray that this would be the day that you would trust in Him. These men are called first and foremost to be followers of King Jesus, to trust in Him as their Savior and follow Him as their King. And so friends, I pray that their example might be an encouragement to you if you've not yet trusted in Him. Uh, to come most willingly to Christ. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for uh, our deacons and elders. Father, please be with us as we seek to, uh, to serve in your church. Lord, we thank you uh, for being so faithful to guide, to lead, uh, to care for us. Father, help us in the week ahead to be faithful in all that you've entrusted to us. Father, all this we ask in Jesus' name.